Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The parable is warning us against the danger and the perils of self-righteousness, but it's also a parable that teaches about our justification and how we do obtain right standing before God. So as we make our way through this parable, I want us to consider three things, beginning with the the confidence of the self-righteous. The confidence of the self-righteous in verses 11 and 12. It's really the confidence of the Pharisee. The Pharisee and the tax collector both go to the temple to pray. And the first thing we read about is that the Pharisee is standing by himself. I know that some translations translate this as the Pharisee standing was praying to himself. But I'm more inclined to interpret this as the Pharisee was standing by himself praying. And this is because it so directly parallels what we're going to read about the tax collector in verse 13 about where he was standing. Okay, so it's not just a parallel, it's a contrast. So I'm inclined to read this, that the Pharisee is standing by himself praying. And if he's standing by himself, we can imagine that he's standing by himself because he doesn't consider himself to be like other people. He doesn't consider himself to be like other people, so he stands apart from them as he prays. And he has reasons to think that he's not like other people, and he tells these reasons to God. I mean, we read that he thanks God that he's not like other men. He's not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, if we were to put this in modern terms, if you've ever used the phrases, well, at least I'm not, or at least I don't, then you know the spirit of this Pharisee. You know what's in the heart of this Pharisee if you've used those phrases before. I mean, fill in the blank. At least I'm not a sex offender. At least I don't sleep around. At least I'm not a drug addict. At least I'm not a school dropout. At least I'm not jobless. These all expose something in our heart that's making us feel superior to other people. And it's really, it's hard to imagine that this Pharisee is actually thanking God with this language. Because it sounds more like he's expecting God to thank him and reward him for how good he is, for how much he's doing for the sake of God. But it's not just what he doesn't do that the Pharisee makes mention of, it's what he does. And he says, I fast twice a week and I tithe everything that I get. In other words, this Pharisee is rigorously involved in spiritual exercises. He fasts twice a week. And he is scrupulous, meticulous in his tithing. And that probably says more than we can say. I mean, does anybody in this room tithe 104 days out of the year? I'm not even sure most of us fast, I should have said fast, fast 104 days out of the year? I'm not sure any of us fast 104 minutes out of the year. And yet, that's what this Pharisee does in his religious devotion. And and he's meticulous in his tithing. Jesus even confirms this about his tithing in Matthew 23. He talks about how they're scrupulous in what they tithe. But what's more important is not do we even do what this Pharisee does. The question that has to confront us here is what is it that does make you prone to self-righteousness in your religious performance? What is it that tempts you to feel superior to other people because of your spiritual life? Is it your faithful church attendance that makes you feel better than your neighbors or your coworkers or your friends or other family members? 
Is it the service that you render on a Sunday morning that's visible to other people that makes you think that God somehow um, is obligated to reward you for your service to God's people and that makes you better for those who only come and sit and worship? Do you think that because you close your eyes and lift your hands during singing that God is more impressed with your devotion in worship? Or are you prone to think because you don't do those things out of your humility, you're actually better than those who do and God must be more impressed with you for not doing it? Are you prone to moral superiority because you don't drink, because you don't smoke and you never have? Or do you feel morally superior because of your spiritual maturity and your ability to exercise your spiritual liberty by drinking and smoking and therefore you feel superior to those who don't? I mean, we're very inventive in the ways that we can exalt ourselves over other people and feel superior to them. I moved back to Yorktown three years ago, and after I was here for about six months, somebody told me that people in Yorktown judge other people in Yorktown on the basis of what side of the river you live on. Are you kidding me? If I can quote John McEnroe, one of my favorite tennis players, you cannot be serious. <laughs> that, that's the way I felt. You cannot be serious. The river divides people based on superiority and inferiority in Yorktown. I spend time in Indianapolis sometimes teaching classes or being part of doing some presbytery work, and people will sometimes ask, you know, where, where, where do you serve as a pastor? I say, uh, in, in, at New Life. Oh, where's that? Yorktown. And you know what they say? Where's that? That's within a hundred mile radius. And we're here feeling superior and inferior to people based on what side of the river you live on? That's ridiculous. But of course we're not the only town that does that. I mean, there's a reason why growing up on the wrong side of the tracks is common language in our culture. Because we invent ways to feel superior to other people. We just manufacture them to feel good about ourselves. And it's an offense to God. But what's even more offensive to God is when it's our spirituality that's making us feel superior. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. He says that whenever we find that our religious life, our spiritual life, is making us feel that we are good. Now notice what he's saying here. He doesn't say whenever your religious life makes you feel good. He says whenever your religious life makes you feel that you are good and above all that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. Now the problem, of course, with self-righteousness is we're far better at detecting it in other people than we are ourselves. In fact, self-righteousness is kind of like bad breath. You can detect it in somebody else in an instant, but you never know that you have it. You're just unaware of it. And so, here are some things to help you identify self-righteousness in your own life and in your own heart. This comes out of a book by Jerry Bridges. And these are some assessment questions. Do you tend to live by a list of do's and don'ts? Is it difficult for you to respect those whose standards aren't as high as yours? Do you assume that practicing spiritual discipline should result in God's blessing in your life? See, we see both things here. We see self-righteousness toward others 
that makes us hold them in contempt. But we see self-righteousness before God by thinking that our performance somehow has merited something from God. Four, has it been a long time since you identified a sin and repented of it? Do you resent it when others correct you or point out your spiritual weaknesses? Are you somebody that needs to be right? Because this is often an indication of self-righteousness. Do you recognize and emphasize the sins of others, but not your own? Do you sense that God owes you a good life? And finally, do you seldom think of the cross? If you find yourself answering in the affirmative to a number of these, you probably have some self-righteousness issues that need to be dealt with in your heart. And that's probably all of us. But it's been said that if pride is the poison that kills the soul, self-righteousness is the cup from which it is drunk. And the problem with self-righteousness is it just assumes the wrong standard for our right standing before God. Because the standard isn't other people. It's not about being better than other people. The standard before God is His perfect righteousness that none of us can meet. And so when we're self-righteous, not only have we adopted the wrong standard, it also causes us to make little of our sin. We never come to grips with the depths of our sin and the reality that we can never meet that standard. And so instead, we simply opt for these superficial coverings of external piety and outward religious performances to get us by, to impress others and to impress God. But you know what? These are nothing but fig leaves. Fig leaves. And of course, we've, we've read about that before in Genesis 3. But perhaps the biggest problem of all when it comes to self-righteousness is self-righteousness nullifies the grace and mercy of God and the work of Jesus. Because if your righteousness is enough to stand before God, you don't need Jesus. Jesus came for nothing. If your righteousness is sufficient for you to stand before God, it nullifies the gospel. Self-righteousness does. But we don't see any of this in the tax collector. So I want us to look secondly at the contrition of the sinner or his sorrow, his confession. And we see this in verse 13. We read that the tax collector also stands by himself, but he does so for completely different reasons. The tax collector is standing far off. We might also say like the Pharisee, the tax collector is standing by himself because he doesn't consider himself to be like other people. He doesn't consider himself to be like other people either, but in contrast to the Pharisee, he considers himself far worse than other people. He considers himself far worse, identifying himself as the sinner. I know most of our translations just say a sinner, but you could translate the Greek here as the sinner. Have mercy upon me, the sinner. I mean, we get no indication of a sense of superiority. He brings no list of accomplishments or merits in his standing before God. He makes no mention of the sins of other people because he's too aware of his own. He doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but instead beats himself on the chest and simply cries out for God's mercy. That's what he does. In fact, in contrition, he kind of prays the way David prays in Psalm 51, doesn't he? According to your great mercy, David prays, blot out my transgression. That's the spirit of this prayer. But we can say more about the prayer of the tax collector. It's interesting and very important, it seems to me, 
that Jesus does not use the common word for mercy as he describes the prayer of this tax collector. He does not put on the lips of this tax collector the common word for mercy. Instead, the word for mercy here is the Greek halasteti. Halasteti is the Greek word. And it's a verbal form of a noun that I already mentioned earlier in the service in connection to confession assurance. It's the Greek noun hilasterion, which is the word for the mercy seat. And it's likely that any first century Israelite listening to this parable would have detected that. Hilasteti. In other words, what this tax collector is crying out for is for the atoning sacrifice that would be offered in the temple that the high priest would take into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to atone for sins. That tax collector is saying, let that atoning sacrifice be applied to me. That's what he's asking for. Let that be applied to me. The sacrifice that you provide, O God, to atone for my sin. Now, we could translate his prayer then, mercy seat me. Now, it's not a very good English translation. It doesn't make for good English, but it's good theology. Mercy seat me is what he's praying for. So notice he's not looking at anything in himself for his standing before God. He looks only to the atoning mercy of God and the sacrifice he provides. And of course, what he's ultimately appealing to is the cross because the cross fulfills the mercy seat and the blood sprinkled there. We've already looked at this. When Paul is writing to the Romans, he says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation or as a hilasterion by his blood. You know, this tax collector is praying for ultimately the blood of the atoning sacrifice fulfilled in Jesus to be applied to him. And Jesus is putting this language on the lips of the tax collector because Jesus knows the only thing that can justify sinners, the only thing that can atone for their sins is the sacrifice God provides. His sacrifice. The sacrifice of the cross. As Paul writes right before this in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Tax collectors and Pharisees church-going Christians and dirty politicians. They've all sinned. And what all sinners need is the mercy of God in the atoning sacrifice that he provides. And this is why Jesus can say what he says in the conclusion. So let's look finally at the conclusion of the Savior in verse 14. Pastor Bob pointed out in his sermon series on the parables that it's very common for the parables to have kind of this surprising twist or assertion made. And that appears here in verse 14. Because it's not surprising at all that Jesus would contrast a Pharisee and a tax collector. What's surprising is the way he contrasts them. Because anybody listening to this parable would have been inclined to assume that the Pharisee was the one in right standing before God and the tax collector was going to be the one who was condemned. But Jesus stands this on its head in verse 14. And he says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. How can it be that this Pharisee, for all of his devotion and outward religion, is not right before God while the tax collector is? How can that be? That's because of this. There's nothing in you or nothing done by you that can justify you, atone for your guilt, or merit your acceptance before God. 
Nothing in you and nothing done by you that can accomplish that. But there is something that can accomplish that. And it's the atoning blood that God provides in His mercy through the sacrifice and ultimately through the cross of His Son. That's what justifies us. That's what atones for our sin. That's what gives us good standing and right standing before God. And only that. That's what the Pharisee needs. That's what the tax collector needs. And that's what I need. And that's what you need to stand before God. The reason that the tax collector is justified and the Pharisee is not is because the tax collector appeals to the only thing that can justify him. The atoning mercy of God. So we have two people. We have a Pharisee who's trusting in his own abilities, his own good deeds, his own goodness to get by before God and to feel superior to others. We have another who looks not to himself but appeals only to the mercy of God through the sacrifice that he would provide. And only one of them is justified. Only one of them is justified. And of course, what is pressed upon us is the question, which one are you? Which one are you? Are you more like the Pharisee in your heart and in your attitude? Or are you more like the tax collector? Do you trust in your religious performance and think that God must be impressed or think that you must impress God to merit His blessings? Are you like the Pharisee and thinking that God will love you more or will have to love you more based on your religious performance and if you fail, He'll love you less? Is that how you operate? Are you a self-justifying person thinking to yourself, I'm really a good person deep down, certainly better than these people? Are you thinking that at least I don't do this, at least I don't do that, and because I don't do this and don't do that, I've merited some kind of standing before God and I'm superior to others? I mean, if, that's, if that's where our heart is, then we have a spiritual case of bad breath. That's what it is. And it stinks. The world smells it. You know that, don't you? The world smells that self-righteousness. That doesn't mean they're not self-righteous. The world can detect it in the church. But more important than that, God smells it. And it stinks to God. Our self-righteousness is an offense to God. My self-righteousness and your self-righteousness is an offense to God. But there's hope for you in the mercy of God. Repent of your self-righteousness. Humble yourself and cling to the cross. Look to the cross of Jesus and God receives you with joy. He'll take the self-righteous who repent of their self-righteousness. But on the other side, there may be people here this morning that have trouble just walking through the doors of a church because of how aware of your sin you are, because you're aware of what you did this week. You're aware of what you did last night. But what you need to hear Jesus saying in this parable is, there's hope for you too. There's hope for you in the mercy of God because God welcomes with joy any sinner who in contrition and in confession repents of that sin and looks only to the cross for atonement and justification and right standing. Jesus delights to receive sinners who repent and look to him. I had a conversation with someone recently that made the comment that he thinks Christian fellowship needs to have more elements of AA meetings in it, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. A Christian fellowship needs to have more things like AA. 
And if you've ever been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you probably know what he might be talking about. I've been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and there's no self-righteousness there. There's no sense of superiority among the guys or the girls in that room. There's no pretension. There's no holier-than-thou attitudes. There's no pretending that you have to have it all together. There's no protecting of the reputation. There's simply an honest acknowledgement of brokenness and a confession of need for healing and encouragement and strength. And you know, the church just needs to stop acting like we have it all together. Because we don't. We're broken people who struggle with sin. We're all in need of a spiritual, radical, reconstructive surgery. Now, praise God that that process has started. And that ought to be manifest in our life and we ought to rejoice in that. But we are daily dependent upon the grace of God and the gospel and the love and mercy of Jesus. We're daily dependent upon those things. I'm just to ask yourself, why did we come this morning? Why did you come to church this morning? Is this just a spiritual pat on the back? Or are you desperate for the mercy and grace of God in Christ Jesus because you're aware of your need for that? You know, as we think about how we are to humble ourselves, we have to acknowledge we can't impress God. We cannot impress God. We can strive to glorify Him with our life, but we cannot impress Him. (laughs) And we also need to come to grips with the fact that we cannot make ourselves great and God great at the same time. You can't do it. So what are you trying to do in your life? Make yourself look great, feel superior to others, or magnify the grace of God? And finally, in humbling ourselves, We simply need to acknowledge the truth that the only thing good in any of us is what God has put there by His grace. The only thing good in us is what God is working by His grace, by the power of the Spirit and the gospel. The only thing good in us is Jesus. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? And do you live like you believe it? And do you treat others like you believe that? Paul believed it. Because Paul was once a self-righteous Pharisee, just like the one in this parable. But he did what Jesus said, and he humbled himself. Listen to what he writes in Philippians chapter 3. He says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He humbled himself. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Nothing. In order that I may gain Christ. Now listen, here comes the language of renouncing self-righteousness. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul did not place his confidence in the flesh or in his own righteousness. He put his confidence in Jesus. What are you placing your confidence in? Maybe we could ask it better this way in light of the parable. How are you going to go home today? You're going to go home like the Pharisee? Not justified? in his own self-righteousness, or are you going to go home like the tax collector 
justified by the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Are you going to go home feeling good about your religious performance, your service to the church, your time here, at least in comparison to other people, thinking that you've somehow impressed God or need to impress Him? Well, remember Jesus' words, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Or are you going to go home trusting in nothing in yourself, but looking to Jesus as your atoning sacrifice and the one who gives you right standing before God? Remember the words of Jesus. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, the good news of the gospel is that everything you need, everything you need to be accepted and embraced eternally by God has been granted to you in Jesus Christ. You don't need your self-righteousness. You need Jesus and His righteousness, and that's all you need to have right standing before God in eternal life. You know, the doors of heaven can be open to sinners, but they're not open by presenting a list of spiritual accomplishments. The doors of heaven are open to sinners who appeal to the blood of Jesus with the words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's pray. God in heaven, we do acknowledge that we are prone to self-righteousness. Help us to identify it and give us grace to repent of it. And help us cling only to the sacrifice you have provided for us in Christ Jesus, whose blood atones for our sins whose righteousness is granted to us and is what we need to stand before you and be accepted and embraced. We thank you for providing that for us in your love and your grace and your mercy. Help us to know how to humble ourselves and trust that in Christ Jesus, you will exalt those who do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.